Sound Design. If you have a problem, you are a problem. And if you are a problem, then you should be replaced with someone who is not a problem. So the best way to have longevity is to not have problems. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the president of RAT Sound Systems, Dave Rat. Dave, welcome to Sound Design Live. Well, nice to meet you, hang out with you. I'm excited to chat about some audio stuff. So Dave, I definitely want to talk to you about sound systems and Teslas, and I got a bunch of questions that people sent me from Facebook that we'll try to look at. But before we do that... Mm-hmm. Once you get a sound system up, what's like one of your favorite songs to play through it? Back in um, the 80s, like doing Black Flag tours, we would play uh, Dark Side of the Moon. I would like to play Dub Syndicate. was doing for a while because there's no vocals it really lets you hear the different instrumentation because when there's vocals it's hard to pick out issues and resonances with various instruments i like to do something with a strong female vocal which helps the upper range Uh, i was using amy irving singing that song why don't you do right from roger rabbit oh sure (laughs) yeah uh, that was that's got a real strong vocal to it um then something that kind of rocks. It's edgy, will hurt your ears a bit, normal, to make sure the stuff isn't too painful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 you wanna do something, you wanna to go to that edge, something guitar rock, and then um, you know, some EDM stuff. Glitch Mob or something in there. Glitch Mob has got some really dynamic, try and avoid anything that's got the over compression. You know, some of these bands pay attention to how much compression's being used. Yeah, and then also trying to get something similar to the band themselves. So if it is EDM, let's play EDM. <laughs> yeah, you definitely, yeah, you got to go there. So Dave, how'd you get your first job in audio, like your first paying gig? Does beer count as payment? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we did a show for Social Distortion in the bowl of a skateboard park in Venice, like the skate park they show in Dogtown Z-Boys. When we set up the PA, it was all we had was two wedges and a BGW 250 amp and a cassette deck for a mixing board. <laughs> and I'd hit, I had the two mics going to quarter inch into the cassette, a Y cord, an RCA Y cord, and then an RCA to quarter inch to go into the mixing board, half the, make no, into the EQ, Tapco Dual 10-band EQ. Half of that was monitors, half it was mains. Yeah, the PA would shut off when the, you hit record on the 90-minute right. tape, and 45 minutes in, the PA shuts off. And, <laughs> and you flip it over. And I made $30. It was supposed to get, like, I think it was supposed to get $150. This was probably 1981, 80, 80, 1980. We were supposed to get $150, and we ended up with $30 and some blown JBL speakers that they had laying around in the back room. Now that's a lot of detail. Do you 
have a pretty good memory for these kinds of details, or you just happen to remember all these details? I have from a this very event? good memory for very few things. Okay. Can you identify a point in between 1981 and now when you made a decision that helped you start getting more of the work that you really love? Was there a time when you were like, okay, I know this is clear now. This is what I want to do. I didn't care if I made money. I lived in the warehouse. I didn't have a car. I drove the truck. I was okay kind of relinquishing my life to being broke and doing what I love to do and working for punk rock bands and um, building sound equipment. The Kind of the reverse happened. It was like, okay, Carrie... And John came to me and kind of said, and, you know, several times I said, well, if we work for some of these other bands, we could make more money and not be starving so much. I was like, I don't want to work for them. I I don't want to do metal. I don't want to do bands I don't like. And they kind of opened up. I I said, okay, fine, I'll step back. And I let them expand the company in that direction. And then that was fine as long as I didn't have to personally do it. Okay. So there was kind of a growth in that way. And then um, continuing to do that, where I kind of stay focused on what I like to do. On the other hand, I've surrounded myself with people that like to do things that I don't like to do. Sure. And that's okay. And that helps our company get to the next levels. Sure. Partners that help you grow. Yeah. So it sounds like you were kind of always doing what you love to do. And then it turned into a it turned into a business. There was a business side that got added onto that, whether you liked it or not. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> didn't start out as a business. No, it was started out as like buying sound gear, building sound gear, and you know, renting, competing with a homemade PA against existing manufactured systems is a challenge. Touring bands didn't want it. You know, trying to establish a reputation with that was difficult. Right. So Christian Michael Martinez asks. As an owner of one of the largest production companies, how did you cope with the possibility of failure in the beginning as a small shop? So there are other people out there in their own corner of the world who are also doing sound and, and, and have their own companies and trying to grow them. So he's asking about like fear of, uh, of risk of starting your own thing, doing your own business. Early on, we didn't have a fear too much because we didn't really have anything to lose. Okay, right. <laughs> um, and... Rat Sound, and we started with a couple speakers in the back of my car and doing parties and slowly built more and more equipment, as t- uh, built up more equipment. Um, but we didn't borrow money. We didn't take any loans or have any take on any debt until 1997. So 17 years of business, just make money, spend it, make money, spend it. So... Right. So the, there was no was, outside loss. It was right. all self-created. And you weren't making assumptions about the demand. You were sort of proving the demand. And as demand came in, then you would grow a little bit. And yeah, I wish we would say that we even thought that far ahead. Okay. <laughs> it was um, build some gear. This is cool. We'll build this. It's, we'd build stuff real indestructible and uh, we'd rent it out. And if we built more of these, then we maybe could get this show and Let's fix this. This is what's blowing out. And we've made some, we have, there were some very fortunate alliances throughout the years with Golden Voice, who we met in the early 80s and have continued to be a promoter that we've been friends with. We grew with them when they were doing little punk rock shows. And Pearl Jam is another one and Chili Peppers. Did you find some motivation from that of like seeing them? Like they're doing okay. We'll keep going. We're doing okay. 
God, it was a lot of us against the world, you mm-hmm. know. We, okay. You know, Very we independent. so early in the eighties, we were doing local shows. We'd got this first kind of relates to your other question. We got a gig doing Dancing Waters in Long Beach. This guy Dennis McBride was the guy's name, and we were doing five nights a week for a hundred dollars a night. Or three shows a night, a week for a hundred dollars a night. Might have been three. Five sounds like a lot. Had to be three. Had to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. And it was in Long Beach. It was a long drive. It was me and another person. Me and Brian and the van and the gear and the gas (laughs) for three long nights. Um, And then we usually, I didn't get paid a lot of the time either. It was low, but then we did some great shows. Um, But that was our first like real proper gig for as far as we were concerned we actually got paid on a repeated repetitive basis sure and then um when we did the tour black flag tours in 84 and 85 85 86 we did three tours with them um that really kind of changed things we were able to learn how to make gear really transportable you know when you're loading in and loading we didn't have any wheels on anything because if you put wheels on the cases, it wouldn't fit in the van. The first tour, we went with hand trucks. We had no wheels, and we got some hand trucks. But this is a long haul with hand trucks. And then um, we started to put wheels on a few cases by the third tour. And then we stopped touring. It was like, okay, we can't go on tour again without wheels. we got to put wheels. we got to redesign everything for Sonic Youth. Picked us up for the Goo Tour. Oh, we did a Stanzig Soundgarden tour in late 80s and then Sonic then Sonic Youth so like, slow now we need wheels yeah yeah <laughs> we, we got we kind of got it figured out we didn't really have any guidance and there was a lot more um, so maybe you didn't even know the inherent risk of like on paper that doesn't look like a great deal $100 a night for all this labor and gear we had no idea no and we every well we kind of had an idea everybody told us we'd fail okay. there's no way <laughs> you're gonna ever survive doing this wow okay you know this was I tried to start the company with uh, the guy that taught me to build speaker cabinets, and he said, "No, nah, you guys, you, if you're wasting your time, you're gonna." Oh well, so there was a lot of faith there, or just uh, motivation to. I'm just gonna keep doing this because I love it. Or, I'm gonna do it, yeah, yeah. and uh, I'll prove them wrong. We'll we'll do this Show anyway. Them. Do it spite. There was a turning the turning point the other way where it was like we started the company grew. We had standardized our equipment. We had Pearl Jam, Chili Peppers, and Offspring, and Blink-182, you know, it was this mid-90s, throughout the 90s, Rage Against the Machine in the 90s, and then getting into the early 2000s. So this was 19, 20 years in, where things really started to gain traction, and um, we started to operate like more like a proper business. And what I believe I've learned over the years, and following projects and doing things like building up the install division or building up the sales department or the sound tools department. The hardest part is deciding what you want to do, what I want to do, or what is going to get done. If you really, if I really believe, if I'm 100% behind it and I'm going to make it happen, it's not whether... It will succeed. It's just how long it's going to take and how much work it's going to take. So if you just don't even let failure be an option, then it's just a matter of work. And there's no, and the other thing is avoid silver bullets. They just don't come. Compared to 
size of the big companies out there, we're tiny. We're not a big company. We're a fairly small company, but we're highly focused into touring with quality bands of a certain genre or, you know, and some stuff that's on touring types and festivals of that. And we're just good at that, those two narrow slivers. You look at companies like PRG or VER and Claire and Sound Image. These guys are huge. Yeah. I mean, I think that sounds like good advice for Christian as well. Like, don't worry about being giant. Worry about, like, this oh, niche that you can serve. Avoid being slipper. giant. Yeah. <laughs> avoid giant. That's um, the, the, you really want to be happy, stable, and profitable. Uh, being giant is precarious, stressful, and a target for people to come after you and you're constantly on the go and on the run. Our goal isn't to be the biggest sound company. We're never going to be the biggest. We just want to be really, really good at what we do. We want to be stable. We like to grow, but not to the point of instability where we'll make large financial purchases or do things that destabilize our, our future. Sure. We also try to maintain a quality of life aspect as well, you know, and whether it's, you know, company lunches and breakfast and bringing your dogs to work and it's a cooperative thing it's you got your work life you got your personal life and they got to kind of mesh together we're not trying to steal one from the other we're trying to make them work together I want to ask you what are some of the mistakes you see people making who are new to front of house mixing, just because you've seen so many people come up through the industry now and people who work with you and under you. Someone is learning to mix or early on in their mixing career. It's not too dissimilar than someone who's just learned to drive. You have this big machine. It's got a lot of power. It's got excitement. You have some new freedoms. You can do things you or control aspects that you couldn't control before, whether it's velocity and acceleration or the ability to have that rush of subwoofers and volume and panning. Probably one of the most common things for um, green engineers is just the, the kick drum is so loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's like riding in a car with somebody, the kid that steps on the gas at every green light slams on the brakes at every red light and everybody else in the car is getting nauseous and they're like, woohoo, isn't this great? <laughs> and maybe if everybody else is just learning to drive, they're excited, but it's distracting from the core purpose, which is to connect the artist with the audience. Like It's like writing a story or a book, you know, it's like, okay, and the guy dies in the end. <laughs> oh, and the guy dies in the end, and then he gets stabbed again, and then all the bad. You know, it's like that's the beginning. There was of no the rising for action a new, for, right. a, for a new engineer. Whereas, you know what? It's okay to have that kick drum sound. It's okay to perfect it, but save it. Wait, wait, and then put it out there a little bit, maybe most, and take it back away again. Give the audience something to look forward to. The other thing I see is. Excitement, exuberance, people, another version of that is um, trying to be a hero. It's like, I can fix this. I got it, right? Mike's down on stage. They, they go running over there, run across the stage, they run back. Okay, if you act like you have a problem, then you have a problem. 
if you don't act like you have a problem, then nobody knows you have a problem. So if something is broken, if the PA is distorting and you have your arms in the everybody look at me, I have a problem. Well, if, you're ha if you have a problem, you are a problem. And if you are a problem, then you should be replaced with someone who is not a problem. So the best way to have longevity is to not have problems. Be, the way to get paid, the way to make money, the way to be successful is to sell confidence. Confidence that when you're there, it's going to be as good as it can possibly be. It's okay to have problems. You don't need to be the best sounding engineer to, in, ever. You just have to be the best sounding engineer of the other engineers mixing that <laughs> night. Or, if you want to bump it up, of the engineers mixing and of the shows in the last three weeks of that venue. Or the last month or the last year or ever in that venue with those tools. Well, that might be a sh crappy, echoey room. And compared to a beautiful, wind-still, cool evening field show, you're never going to get close. But you contain your expect your goals to... And that way, you actually have a chance of succeeding. And in France, they say, this is not possible. And then when something can be done, this is not a problem. I, I'm thinking back when I was doing this TV show, and he was like, we have, we have, this is not possible. We have, I said, we don't have any problems here today. He looks at me like, what do you mean we don't have any problems? <laughs> I said, we don't have any problems. We just have a big pile of solutions we haven't found yet. And he looked at me like that was like this revelation to him. I said, it's okay. Because the ones we can't fix can't be fixed. But if it can be fixed, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. So stay with me here. Let's get this done. If you can hold on to that concept and instill in the artist or the promoter or the manager, whoever you're, or all of the above, that um, you got this. And it's going to be as good as it's going to be. And you're unfazable. You see it in movies. You know, people walk through and Lord of the Rings, arms are coming through. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> right? Doesn't it's that unfazability that um, helps build the confidence. And if you do that and combine that with, give me the tools I need to do my job, and everything will be fine, then you can write your own paycheck. If you look at our job as the need to create order out of chaos in like a perfectionistic way, then it's really scary to go to work. And you're like, I have to fix all the things and I don't know if I can do it. And Dave's going to see that I don't know how to use this piece of equipment and I'm going to feel bad. But I think after you work for a few years, it, you have to get sort of comfortable with a certain level of chaos all the time. And you're just making less chaos out of chaos. I think there's an attitude shift there where you just, you're not excessive with your need for perfection. You don't pick up every mic that falls down especially if you're going to draw attention to yourself. You, you, yeah, you prioritize, exactly. And yeah, you're never going to have... Sound is an imperfect science. It's not a, there's nothing perfect about it. It's just an opinion. And it's a group opinion often. And that group opinion is affected as much by the tone of the kick drum or whether you have both kick drum mics working as it is by somebody running across stage. Those will both alter that opinion. So making sure you prioritize your actions to make sure that you minimize any negative impacts and maximize positive impacts on that group opinion. I worked with a great sound engineer who also did some theatrical sound design in Austin. And I'm, I can't think of his name right now, but he was actually on this podcast years ago. And um, 
Working with him as an assistant sound designer was a really great experience for me because I would get stressed out about not being able to get the right equipment. And you know, you're working with low budget theater and I'm like, hey, we need this, this, and this equipment. We need this EQ, we're gonna get feedback. And he was totally cool. I was stressed out because he had to be away for a while. And when he came back, he was like, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to make it work. And he explained to me about how limitations can breed creativity. And that changed my mind about a lot of things. And seeing him work and seeing this really experienced guy be able get, not get stressed out about this crappy equipment that we had to work with and use it in creative ways was important for me to see. There was a phase where I was going through, I was trying to do the biggest show possible on the smallest console possible. He's <laughs> <laughs> use the minimal amount. And for me, that was um, mixing um, live earth on a, um, I want to say a 16 or 24 channel Venice. Wow. Midas Venice that um, and a little rack, a little eight space rack. How did you convince the whoever was the producer that that would be a Acceptable or a good idea? <laughs> um, they, Peppers weren't going to play and there was no room to put it and they were wedging them into the show and trying to get them so the, the production people were perfectly happy. Yeah, they like, they okay. loved that. Right. And then, but everybody else was happy because we're doing live earth. We're trying to save the earth. The last thing we want to do is fly in a thousand pound mixing board and have that set up. Okay. You so deal with all of the stuff. So I was earthing the live earth. Okay. By sure. Going minimal. I was, re you know, keeping everything and I rented local and I, we were on tour at the time. And then there was a negative side is we had to fly into live earth. So you're flying in, you're burning fuel to go mm -hmm. in. But, sure. you know, greater good. I don't know. That's not was out of my realm at that point. But my, what was in my realm was when I did get there. I could have flown all of the stuff that I had on tour, brought it in, and had everything comfortable, perfect. And, sure. Or I could uh, bring a tiny little board and set it up in the rafters there and nice. have some fun. What's one of the biggest mistakes you've ever made? I've made so many. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Woodstock, the second, the first new Woodstock. Okay. Uh, when there was all the rain and mud and it was a long hike. There was no barricade to get to the front of the house. So you had to hike out just through the audience to wow. get no pathway, no legitimate pathway. So I, I have a DBX 120X DS subharmonic synthesizer. Classic. Six beers <laughs> and, and, inside of a cardboard box and some cables and my headphones. And um, so I'm walking out there and they get about halfway out. And there's these, they, people have turned into mud demons and they're running through and sliding on their belly. And you, know, you can look at pictures of these wow. people. There's puddles, one, two, three feet deep, little wow. lakes, right? Mud lakes. So I get almost all the way out and it's like, oh, can't get there here. And I'm trying to so I finally get out to front of house. I've got everything timed out. It's good. That's not really a part of the story. I actually timed it wrong. I got out there two bands too early. So, I, okay. <laughs> so now I'm trapped out there. There's no way I'm going back. But I'm sitting there. I get in the field for things and watching everything get set up. And comes time for set change. We do the line check, headphone, talk back mic, get everything tapped out. It's good on the headphones. It's all good. And I start talking to my new friends that I've just hung out with for two hours. Production calls were good to go, ready to roll. 
Okay, I'm up, faders up, we're live, I'm hot. And then they're going to feed house, they're going to fade house music, or they're going to shut everything else off, but I'm live. I can hear them rustling around stage. I turn around, I'm talking to somebody, because I know I'm just going to come live. And I hear this like, it's like, what is that? And I look over, and just about that time, he goes, is that Flea? And it's like, I look over, and sure enough, Flea is out there, butt naked, out there with his <laughs> bait, just rocking out, head just moving. He's about the size of, you know, you pinch your fingers together. He's a little tiny peanut size. And from where I am, we were far back. And I got nothing. I look down at my board. Meters are sitting there. They're going all the way up into the yellow. It's perfect volume. The bass lines are lit. Everything's... And this shock just comes over, like, oh, no. And I said, hey, I got no bass. I got no sound. And meanwhile, this was the last band of the last night. So they're all packing up. Everybody's kind of like, you know, you see, like, the people just mulling around, and there's... Yeah. No one's paying attention to you. No one's paying attention to me. And I said, I had a a beer in my hand. I said, I got no sound. I threw that beer... Broke the glass on the thing. I got oh, no, no. I swearing. I got no, and poof, everybody heard me then, right? So they're running around. I went up to the board and I brought the faders down to nothing. And then they go, You got left. I said, All right. You got right. Meanwhile, my heart's pounding. I'm trying to stay good. He go, Do I got subs? Not yet. All right. You got subs. And I was like, Okay. Very slowly. Right, and I just slow. I did the slowest, most painful fade up to full volume. The audience cheers. Flea starts playing even harder. He has no idea that you can't be heard. (laughs) (laughs) The audience obviously thinks there's a slow fade intro. Very dramatic. And everything's fine until about three weeks go. Well, I tell the tour manager, said, "Okay, if something comes out of this, I just want you to know I had some problems on the front end." uh, flee. I brought him up late, slow. I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to have an issue with it because I don't think anybody noticed. I know it's hard to believe a quarter million people, but I think it actually, and then I was in rehearsals and, um, flea comes up to me and says, little bird told me bass wasn't on. Oh no. And I saw all of a sudden, and then you got that thing where like people are like kind of mulling around and nobody will give you the eye contact <laughs> or looking elsewhere and everybody's looking down. Like y'all know something I don't know. And uh, somebody had sold me out that I had shared the information, but I don't know whether it was, it was all right. But he got more and more. He's like, do you know what it's like being butt naked in front of a 50, half a million people playing your guts out? I was like, no, <laughs> I don't. But I do know one thing. He goes, wow, what's this? And he's kind of spitting on me and we're close. And I said, just be glad you weren't me. He says, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm like trying to think clear, clear, please, please think. I said, well, when it happened, you didn't know. I knew. And <laughs> I was responsible for it not happening. It was my fault. And I was in the middle of it. And I can't fix it. I can't fix it. But I can tell you one thing. And he goes, what's that? I said, it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me a hug. And I was all good. It was good enough. Shorter, another one I had, um, I was mixing Soundgarden. And I know I was on an XL4 on that one. And I was talking to the manager. He was right behind me. And 
the show was great. It was going right. Everything's good. Put my headphones on, put it down. I went over to cue up something onto the meters and um, hit the master mute for the entire PA. <laughs> <laughs> and we had silence. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> and it came back on. And I tried, I just, I didn't, I just kind of acted like nothing happened. And everybody had, it, after when things mute like that, everybody goes, woo, and it comes back. And then everybody kind of goes back to normal. And Rick looks over at me and goes, what happened? And I said, well, <laughs> I kind of fucked that. That would have been me. That would have been me. I um, did a, Little bit of a auto mute for you there. <laughs> I didn't navigate that one near as well. <laughs> I hope everyone feels better about themselves now. <laughs> I had yeah uh, one one two, I was watching one band. I was watching Foo Fighters play, and I'm standing back there with Foo Fighters manager guys mixing. He dials up, well known engineer, and he, he they came out of rehearsals, dialed everything up. The system it just didn't come up well. It came up uh, just a mess. And as soon as it came up, he put his headphones on, went down, and uh, XL4 as well. He went over to turn up the Q volume, missed the Q volume, hit the pan pot, didn't hear it come up, reached over, turned the Q up, didn't realize anything. And now he's PFL, he's in his cans, <laughs> and the whole PA is over there. And I was like, that was with the manager, I was like, should I tell him? He's like, because they don't know what has just happened. I was like, now this guy's under stress. He's already, wow. Well, I was like, dude. I said, Oh, a little bit <laughs> you're a little, little heavy on the right here. <laughs> Roshan Malim. Roshan Malim. I met him this year at NAM. He's so cool and humble. Man, what an amazing sound engineer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Ask him about his subwoofer configurations and which is his favorite and why. And what is the most common subwoofer configurations for gigs, his ideas between flown subs and ground stacks. So a lot of questions about subs here. Um, maybe a couple specific things we can pull out are, do you have a favorite sub configuration? Is that a thing? You know, like anything in sound, you really want to focus on the proper tool for the job at hand. So... What you're going, what I'm looking for in a sub configuration mixing when I was mixing bass nectar would be completely different than what I was looking for Blink 182, which would be different than Peppers. You know, it depends on how much dependent on the low end it is. The sub configuration I prefer is the one that covers the venue as best as possible. It's interesting that subs are such a strong and exciting concern. It's a hot topic. It's a hot topic, and yet it is not uncommon to have extremely poor sub coverage on a fairly regular basis from a lot of shows. Yeah, that's a good point. We're all talking about it, but we're, we're not all talking about it. it. We all love it, <laughs> and we do a shitty job at fixing it. <laughs> There's a disparity of coverage in the middle versus coverage of the room as a whole, and that's a challenge because the better you make it, the more consistent you cover a room with low frequency, the more diluted that powerful tight sub energy is in the middle. If you just cover the middle in the mix, you can get an incredible sub sound, but it's 
the people off the sides aren't going to get that experience. And if you do spread it out well, if you do a really good job of spreading it, that sub-energy bouncing off the various walls or just the fact that you don't have near as many subs focused into the center or you've used a, a gradient array where you've got them all time delayed and you've got them kind of fighting against each other for that coverage in the center, um, you lose that impact in the middle in exchange for giving... It's a tra that trade-off is mm -hmm. difficult. Sure. I found that the best balance I've had for ground stack mm -hmm. subs to solve that is an N-fire array. I, th I think I basically just one sub as your primary source and then maybe... Two or three, two or three subs in front, set up like in an arc in front of it, and um, with that arced array pointed outward, somewhat to increase the energy outward to offset some of the natural buildup of energy that occurs. Pointing the subarray outward to reduce the natural power alley that occurs midpoint between. So this would be two. Infrared arrays under maybe two, your two left-right main arrays. Yeah, underneath or like an arc, like a sub-arc. One, two, three, kind of with the outside ones pointed outward, the middle ones pointed at 45, and the inside ones either pointed slightly inward or straight forward. And then at the um, center of that arc, that center point would be another sub stack, which acts as your zero millisecond point. You time delay the arc to that center point. And that gives you a really powerful fan. And then that covers you, that, that brings a bulk of your sound out. It forms two quasi point sources, one left and one right. And then putting a few low volume subs across the center to fill in. Um, and try and time those up. There's not going to be perfect timing, but just to give some low-frequency energy there. Uh, as far as flown subs, you can do pretty good with a nice sub line on either side, but you're going to run into some significant um, interference patterns. They're line sources from looking at them in the vertical domain, but horizontally, as you walk from side to side, they act as point sources. Or if you were to look at down upon it, you'd see that they're just points, because those lines are. Uh, the interference pattern caused by two point sources is significant. And you get a summation dead center, and then a series of summations and cancellations as you walk to either side. You could have a group of people, you have an area of 10, 12 feet wide that's silent, low end, and very distracting for people in a primary viewing spot. Sure. There's a few things that you can do that are very effective. Well, first of all, the worst thing you can possibly do is run your subs mono. Uh, when we first started doing PAs, every, there was no subs on an aug, so you had left and right. And it was like, hey, let's go left and right. We'll put subs on an aug sand. Well, when we went subs on augs, we also went subs on a mono aug sand. We didn't go left augs, right augs. Well, left Monooxin means that whatever problems you have are going to be exasperated. Well, then, if you put all the subs in the middle, you get this nice even coverage, except you also have a lot of low end bouncing back onto stage, and you lose that cool sub imaging of having the subs pulled to one side or another. It's kind of, and you blast the people in the middle. Mm -hmm. so there's some negatives. Having a separate left and right sub augs, I find to be extremely useful. And then, to reduce the power alley and the cancellation modes, if you run just kick drum to the left and just bass guitar to the right, 
they will never cancel or sum because they're two separate sources. It's only when you run the exact same thing to both sides that you have these cancellation and summations issues. Well, instead of doing that, you could run like the bass 5 dB louder on the right and the kick 5 dB louder than the bass on the left. Well, that'll get rid of those big cancellation holes right off to the left and right of mixed position or reduce them by significant amounts. So for people who don't know, I, I believe you have a video on YouTube where you actually explain this idea of the two coherent sources and then what if they have different signal in them? Yeah, now with that, the little speakers. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Now if polarity reverse one side. You can see how they affect and interact with each other. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to put two different pink noise sources. So this is a different pink noise generator going to each side. There's no interference. No longer do they... Now what I'll do is I'm going to pull in... I wonder, have, do you also maybe like put the same source that might be the kick drum but with two different microphones? Would that also... Do the same thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it can to some degree, and that's definitely um, useful as well. I try, I mean, a perfect world, over time, as I've been f trying to figure out and understand sound stuff, I've come up with a couple basic theories or concepts. And the two concepts are that nowhere in nature does the exact same sound radiate from multiple points in space. It just doesn't happen. You don't have a, a cricket and another cricket doing crickety things at the same time so perfectly and so thing that when you get halfway between them, you get a power alley, cr cricket right. power alley. Or I guess you could have a reflection from multiple places, but then it's arriving later. It's saying. arriving later, and it's an imperfection in the in the reflection because the reflection, the initial source is a point source, whereas the reflection is off of a wall. It doesn't reflect off of a point. And again, it's not a perfect point source, or it, it can't even reflect in the same way that it was it originated. And because of that, nowhere in nature do you have two things that are perfectly in time and phase for any kind of frequency bandwidth, and you don't have anything that's out of polarity. You don't have cancellations like we do when we have the same sound radiating from multiple points in space. And then the corollary to that would be that nowhere in nature do multiple unrelated sounds radiate out of a single point in space. And you don't have, you know, we don't have the vacuum out there and uh, cases being loaded and the sound of a TV all coming out of a hole in the ground. They're all moving around. That's something we do all the time as well, another unnatural event. And I think that the more that we avoid these unnatural events, well, we can use these either to help or hurt us. Having the same sound come out of multiple points in space is the fundamental design concept behind a line array. Having all these identical sounds as close as they possibly can radiating gives us the ability to have cancellation above and below the array, and focus the sound into a certain area, reducing reflections off the ceiling and 
uh, improving the quality of sound and being able to reduce the sound level up close and increase it farther away, reducing our drop off. Same thing applies to the sub array. Having the exact same sound come out of a end fire array out of the rear speaker and the front speaker allows them to sum in the front and spaced in time properly, give you the ability to cancel behind. On the other hand, having the exact same sound come out of multiple points in space is what causes all of our cancellation nodes between various subwoofers and phase problems. And by trying to minimize the exact same sound coming out of multiple points in space, when you have any cancellation issues or summation issues unwanted, they can be mitigated or reduced by not running the exact same sound into multiple places. By going mono subs on an aux end, you've run the exact same sound everywhere. So you've maximized the amount of cancellation problems you're going to have and power alley experience. Um, so by having the bass in one side of the kick in the other or taking two mics on the kick drum, putting one mic inside up near the beater or boundary mic that's picking up the inside of the drum, it gets a nice tight sound, taking a second mic out by the resonant head and putting it near the hole, uh, which picks up a lot more secondary resonance and different decay times of the sound of the kick. And then panning those out, putting one maybe hard left or three quarters to the left and the other three quarters to the right, not only do you not have the exact same kick drum coming out of both sides, but you've also created a dimensional timed experience as well, because the tight kick hits you from the one side, and then it lingers with the resonance. Boo, so you get the pop, boo, boo. So you've got the kick kind of flowing from right to left or left to right. And then you can pull a similar trick by using the tight sounding bass DI and maybe panning that mostly to the side that's got the resonant kick side and taking the bass speaker mic and panning that to the tight kick side where it's got a lot more room sound, it's got some speaker artifacts. So now you've got this, uh, the bass drum's going the other, the bass guitar's going the other way. It's click, 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 and then woo, 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 off the other side. And the people on the left side of the room are hearing tight kick and loose bass, and the people on the right side are hitting loose, loose kick and tight bass. And you've EQ'd these to both be pleasing. And if it didn't sound good, don't use it in the first place. You get rid of that mic, use another one. So now everybody gets a good sound, they just don't get the same sound. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. It sound isn't perfect. It's about the experience and the opinion. And you're already going to lose if you try and make it perfect. And if you try and make it sound the same for everybody in the room, that's a loss as well. The pure distance, unless you put headphones on every single person, it will not sound the same as long as you're using acoustic radiating speakers. So therefore, we can write that off. We don't need it to sound the same. We just can have it sound similar. Now, similar tonally, similar ambience-wise, or similar mix-wise, those are all up for grabs. We don't have to hold on to any of those as fixed assets. Who cares if the people on the left side of the room, it sounds like Aerosmith's first album, and the people on the right side of the room, it sounds a little bit more like back in black, and it's got this tight sound versus a Both of them are great albums. It's yep. okay. 
And as you and if you're in the middle, you've got this cool stereo sound that mixes the two. Sure. As long as the various good, everything sounds good everywhere, great everywhere. It doesn't by striving to make it sound the same everywhere, you lose the ability to make it sound great everywhere. You lose maybe the heights of maximum summation from you know these two sources that are coherent, but then you also lose the maximum depths of maximum cancellation when that doesn't work out. Uh, so you kind of have a middle ground there where you have these two slightly different experiences, but it's all good. <laughs> and, and yeah, you don't get the cancellation, you don't get the summation, and it remains interesting. You actually add that new layer of curiosity. Like If you do it well enough or if it can be done well enough, people will tend to, if it sounds nice, the volume levels are loud up front and quiet and back, people will naturally migrate to the volume level of comfort. And they'll balance that out with the optical level that, or the, the visual experience they want to do. So they want to be close for visual. If it's too loud, they move back or earplug. So they'll kind of adjust. That's cool. Yeah. I'm okay with that as long as nothing sounds bad. And especially if you've done something where you've kind of panned things out, for the most part, you're not going to get someone come in and say the kick drum was too boomy on the left side compared to the right side that's but they are going to say i could not hear any low end when i was right near the mix position Can we go back to this uh, subarray? Just because I've never seen an arced in-fire array. This came out of all the, uh, the subtesting that I did, primarily on Blink-182 tour, and then finished or got farther on the Soundgarden tour. Where I just really committed myself to... I, on the various tours, I commit myself to solving when I was touring, solving various aspects and using this environment I was fortunate to be in to really push the limits as far as I can. Mm -hmm. And I tried multiple arrays, and out of it I came up with this fan array. The way to make it is find your zero point, find your rear sub location, where the grill of that, center of the grill. I would just have someone step on a tape measure there, or I'd put a road case on a tape measure end there. I would then met, walk out 6.25 feet, which gives you, I think that's 45 hertz. It's been a little while since I've looked at that. For a 45 hertz maximum rear cancellation. And then I draw an arc with a string. Just draw the arc based off that point. That point in the back is where that rear sub, the center point of the rear sub is. Mm -hmm. And then you would place along that arc the front radiating points, the same point you measure from the sub. You would place um, one, two, three, if it, you don't need an arc with just one, but four, however many you want. Set your zero point of the arc at zero milliseconds, your rear sub. And then you set your front ones at plus 6.25 feet, which is about plus six milliseconds or plus 5.8 milliseconds. I see. So if you sold it up any of those front subs, it should be arriving at the same time as the rear sub. Yeah, so the concept is the sound radiates from here. It travels 6.25 feet. 6.25 feet later, this radiates sound, and as a summation, same thing here and same thing here. The 
closer these are together, the beamier it gets, the closer they are along the arc. And as you spread them out on the arc, the wider it covers. The problem with subarcs is that if you don't use that rear sub, they have a maximum summation. They're extremely loud at the focal point because that's when you're equidistant from all the sources. So you put a substack equal to one of those substacks. So if that's three, 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 three. Um, you put a substack there right at that summation point, and it's making sound that'll actually cancel out everywhere else and some in the front. Enrico asks, ask him about the technique of using a PA using headphones as a reference and if he still feels the same way about it since he made this YouTube video. All right, so you have this YouTube video where you talk, uh, how do we cue a live sound system, where you talk about basically listening to a CD through headphones and then in the room, the headphones room, going back and forth and using that to EQ your sound system. So I think he's asking, do you still do that? No, because I haven't been mixing. But if I was mixing, I would still do that. I stopped touring. I haven't, I haven't mixed a show in a couple of years, two and a half years now. Establishing reference points is what I believe to be one of the most valuable things for a successful sound engineer. And if we look at a successful, if we look at a quality or world-class sound engineer, a world-class sound engineer, in my opinion, has the ability to recreate a quality sound consistently throughout a variety of environments and challenges. It's extremely challenging. It's extremely challenging because sound is such a perceptive entity or, or, or experience. And for some reason... We, as humans or sound engineers, like with art, you look at a picture on a wall, it's like, oh, okay, I perceive that to be something. We don't have a way for me to get you to perceive it like I perceive it. Right, it's all and subjective. And I get pain, it's subjective. It's all the subjective. So we, with sound, we like kind of relinquish ourselves to, well, it's just subjective. We'll just let it be. I mean, they'll make the sound sound the same using a real-time analyzer and smart, and they will give me the same thing, and the guitars will be the same, and I will just know because I know what things, and I have ears, and I'm going to basically go how I feel. We drastically underestimate how inconsistent our perceptions are, because we don't have a reference point when we're off. Well, we, we actually do, but we don't. Um, and if you've flown on an airplane, or you've been scuba diving the day before, you have a cold, you drank too Dehydrated. much, you know, whatever it is, you're, the hearing dis differentials are so vast. It's and it's affected by all the other senses, changes by what you're looking at and what if you're... If you're in a bad mood, yeah. you have a headache. What you smell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, you, you, you drank too much and you have a headache, and so for 20,000 people are going to get a completely different mix than they got yesterday. So how do we stop that? How do we deliver a consistent sound in a perceptual realm? And using headphones, triangulating. I mean, for me, there was several aspects. One, setting up early in the tour dialing up your instruments, getting as much consistency, using the same mic every day, using the same placement as close as you can, um, hopefully having musicians that present a similar-ish sound to you every day. So trying to get the onstage consistency together. And then based on that, you can tell if that consistency is there for the most part because your console settings, if all of a sudden one day you have to boost high-end on every channel. Another day, you're cutting high-end on a channel. If those are moving around a lot, um, 
knowing what your console looks like. So having a visual reference of your console, establishing a mechanical reference of how you're putting things on stage, and then establishing an auditory reference of playing a CD, listening it to in headphones, listening to the system with and without the headphones, trying to get the tonal balance of the sound system to be aligned with the tonal balance of a consistent reference point, your headphones. The headphones are not going to change, or if they do, it's going to be you know, minuscule or, or irrelevant compared to the amount your ears are going to change. And then find, finally using a fourth reference, which is a visual like a real-time analyzer or smart, and seeing what that curve is. Doing our best to triangulate or quadrangulate those things. <laughs> sure. Into Use every tool you can. Gaining. And if one of those is off, if two of them are on and one's off, start questioning everything and figure out why and reassess. Everything looks good. My mobs, my knobs are in the in the wrong spot. Why are the no, why is the console knobs off? Uh, we had a recording truck come in. They plugged it. They got transformers. They they lowered the um, uh, I don't know. There's some loss in the lines, and that drove up. Well, that drove my high end and my high frequency. All of a sudden, you're na- you're figuring this stuff out mm-hmm. rather than being a victim of wonder of what what, what happened. Sure. Why did this happen? I guess it's and that's the magic. worst. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah. Why is this yeah. magic going on? Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't want the magic. You want to know, deduce it down. Sure. Still, I mean, I go, it seems like it would get better. Um, you go to shows and you listen to, and it's like this doesn't sound good, or this is extremely bright, or this has no. The tonal balance of this is so far off, or the mix is so far off. The kick drum is so loud compared to everything else, or hmm. it seems fairly easy to get someone back on track. Put the album in that this song is recorded and put it on your headphones and then take your headphones off. And if you're even close, if you can get anything close to what that album sounds like out of a live show, you're better than 90% of the engineers (laughs) out there. (laughs) You already win. Craig wants you to talk about balancing tour and touring with family and health. So not a specific question there, but we all know that this job can be challenging on your health when you have like long hours and maybe difficult locations. And It's been an evolution, you know, from when I first started touring uh, in 85 until I stopped touring in 2017, 32 years-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, early on, it was just, oh my gosh, I get to travel around the world with my friends. <laughs> I was invincible, man. There's health, Adventure. health. I don't need help. I, yeah. I got go, go, go. There was uh, load the truck, work the show, load the truck, drive the truck, no sleep. And it was great. It was, I would not trade it for the world, wouldn't do it again. <laughs> then as things progressed, um, yeah, it starts to, the thrill starts to wear off and you start to like, okay, I got to pay attention. I get run down for me. Also when my daughters, I had twin daughters and so their mom, she would also tour. We had a, th- a deal where she would never, we would never leave the girls for more than three or four days with our tour overlaps. She was touring with Pearl Jam. I was touring with Chili Peppers. Being trapped on a bus, being waiting for 4 a.m. for the trucks to load, and then um, 
traveling on a bus and loading. You know, it's, there's too much dead time. It's hard to find healthy. I tried it. I tried like running, swimming, tried um, bike riding was good. That was probably one of the better ones that I did, carrying okay. a portable bike. Sure. Um, not drinking a lot. Challenge, though. You got a lot of dead time. And that's ultimately, you know, was the reason why I'm not traveling now is just the amount of time, dead time. Definitely important. And now it's different, too. I mean, a lot of the techs now, I mean, everybody's got to be super um, computer hackery to get all this. No sound vision, no 3D modeling. I, For me, I think that one of the ways I kept myself happy and sane was to start an external project every okay. tour you know one tour it was i started blogging right i just did a blog and i think i, I did that a couple tours in a row or and it kept me busy i had something to do every night sure. take some photos boom stay interactive stay writing and responding uh one tour i decided i was going to learn to weld okay you know aluminum and you know i said get i bought a welder on tour and i welded <laughs> <laughs> um built That's a great. go-kart and yeah I, the last tours that I did, end of it was end of seventeen, end of sixteen. Um, I was carrying um, a fold-up bicycle, a Brompton on my, um, and we were in Europe. I never got on the bus. Never once did I get on that bus. Wow, nice. I would. I kept a road case at front of house with all of my clothes, <laughs> and I would. I had my little bag that fit on the front of my thing. I put three days of clothes in the front. Brompton bag and at the end during encore break I would go on uh, hotel tonight and uh, app and book a hotel within biking distance of the venue rain or shine mm -hmm. show ended I bike my bike right out of the venue with three days worth of clothes spend the night in the hotel in the morning wake up bike out to a train station take the train to the next city bike into the hotel or book my own hotel, bike back to the gig. And yeah, took bike trips all throughout Europe. It was wonderful. Well, that's a great way to do it. Oh, it was, oh, it was awesome. Uh, so we talked a little bit about flown and ground subs. And so Stephen Mink is asking about if you have both, his thoughts, his thoughts on where in a room to align flown and ground subs. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> If you a, have both you know, of them. those are, that's a that's a that's a fascinating question because there are two polar opposite concepts on this. And I think that well, maybe there's one concept on this and then me as a polar opposite to okay. everybody else <laughs> on the planet. Um the alignment of subs to the flown stacks due to the distance between them and due to the frequency range where the crossover exists because uh, there's going to be a frequency overlap. There needs to be a frequency overlap. And so that overlap range, which is typically between, let's say, 50 hertz or four, 50 hertz to 100 hertz somewhere, the low end of the flown rig and the top end of the ground stack subs, theory or the going concept is that you want that to be as smooth as possible and you want to time it. But since those things are far apart, it's almost impossible to time them correctly for anything but a small region. It's the exact same problem we run into subs left and subs right, where you have summation halfway in between and cancellation nodes and those cancellation nodes will exist. So the question then infers to 
where do I want the problems to be because these things are overlapping? How do you solve this unsolvable problem is the question. This is why there's so much debate over it because it's not solvable. You can only optimize and make some sacrifices. Um, And my take on it is I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I, I left, I'll take this. I think that it falls back into a version of the same source sound coming out of multiple sources in an unnatural event. Um, therefore, trying to sum them perfectly, trying to get them as close together as possible, trying to get that signal to be as identical as possible is going in the wrong direction. And that having yet a third input, taking the... You could do the same thing we did with the kick mics. We had the 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 boundary mic at beta 91 or whatever sent to the left-hand subs and the whole mic and the kick sent to the right-hand subs. Well, now take that boundary mic and run it to the right-hand PA and take the hole in the sub and run that to the left-hand PA. So now when you have that sub on an aug send and you're trying to time up that alignment, it's not even the same mic going to the sub as it is going to the high. They're not even going to line no matter what. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the alignment so you don't have the summation, so you don't have the cancellation, so you've t- removed. Just take the problem off the table. Put it somewhere else. Dave Gammon wants to know... Does he really see the M-Force driver as the future? I don't see any single product as the future. Also, I don't see any product that's gained traction as the past. I mean, almost nothing really goes obsolete and almost nothing truly dominates, except for maybe iPhones or something. I see them as a very, very useful and powerful tool to accomplish massive uh, extreme levels of output in reduced truck space. The, the big advantages I see to the M-Force is you're able to get uh, an extended low frequency response out of a smaller enclosure than you can with a conventional driver due to its extremely high magnetic force. Its BL is so strong that you can force extreme amounts of low end out of small boxes. Uh, additionally to that, but not necessarily at the same time, you can also force the speaker to move very quickly and accurately. So for example, like a motor on like a 18 inch speaker, that coil of wire has like one tenth the amount of magnetic force, the BL that the, this engine size, the ability to get this thing moving that it does on a M4. So all things being equal, if you attach a cone that's one and a half, three times the weight of a normal cone to this motor, you can get it moving extremely quickly. And the impact that you can get, the equivalent would be like um, improving the damping factor on an amplifier or transient response would be very high. And that was audible in an arena, having replacing double um, 18s with M-Force boxes standing in front of house. The difference of impact at front of house was extremely noticeable. Like hits you like in a club, but we're in an arena. And that can't be done with a normal double 18. So there are some, and even the 21s, that's the asset, that's one of the assets I see that. So extended low frequency and extended impact, 
the challenges with it is, at least in the designs I've worked with, is they don't have that kind of real warm, fuzzy, resonant. They're more like real. So nothing fixes everything, especially with a perceptive reality like sound. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the future, but they're definitely a powerful tool. Garrett Quinton wants to know, um, has he seen or heard of anyone else not affiliated with rat sound use the double hung array as he did with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and perhaps any comments on the whole concept? So we've been talking about this a lot already today, um, but I think I remember reading about this as well. You at some point had basically duplicate PAs hung and so that you could do one with the band and one with the vocals. Is that the story? Mm -hmm. And so he wants to know if there were other, there are other people doing this besides you. Yeah. Similar to that. It was, um, it it was a different thing than, than what we talked about. What we've been talking about now is not having the same sound come out of multiple points in space. This is exercising the other side of it, which is nowhere in nature, do multiple unrelated things radiate out of a single point in space. So this is dealing with the corollary to that. So rather than have the bass, guitar, vocals, drums all coming out of two lines, what if we had the bass come out from out here and the guitars come from out here and the vocals come from here and the and the drums come from here. So we started starting to expand the radiation points from two to four. Sure. So could we call this multi-channel mixing? Multi-channel, yes, multi-channel. And but even but so the natural reaction, at least for me early on, was well, that's not gonna make that much difference. They're right next to each other. But there was another advantage too, which is at the time I did it with VDOS, which was at the limitations of its mechanical hang depth, which is 15 boxes. And we couldn't get any more. We were doing these big arenas and we just couldn't get enough PA and you can't put a second one next to it without it interfering because then you have the same sound out of multiple sources and your interference patterns are terrible. What if I put two next to each other but I didn't put the same sound into each? Then I was able to double the amount of PA without introducing the same sound coming out of multiple sources and going the other way of having this. And it's amazing. You could actually take the guitar and put it from one to the other, even though they were only six feet apart a hole be six feet between them. You could hear it at 200 feet away in front of a house. You could hear the, the width of the PA. Wow. Further, uh, deficiency in speakers is that when you run a cone speaker very to its limitations, it's moving in and out. And when it moves all the way out, it can't move out any farther. It's as far as it goes and it's got to move in. And that's the bass guitar. And now you're going to put, let's say, a guitar in there that says move in and out, in and out, in and out. Little tiny bits, right? So that's going out all the way. But the guitar says, oh, by the way, go out a little farther. And it can't go out a little farther because it's already out, out all the way for the bass. So you get this blurring of the peaks of one caused by the other. And you also just get power handling and limiting issues. So by spreading it out, you could beat the crap out of the bass guitar into the 15s of one rig, but the low end of the vocals and the the low end of the guitar would stay clean, and the guitar could beat the crap out of the sixes in that one rig. Sure. But the vocals would be perfectly clean in the because I'd put bass and vocals in one, so the bass would be hard on the 15s and use a little bit of the two-inch, and the vocals would mainly lean into the mids and highs sure. Each inch- and stay clean, but the guitars had their own rig for mids. Nice. Yeah, each instrument has more And then the room. kick drum was not in the same rig as the bass, so it had its own rig, and then you could spread the times around. And I could move things between them um, in real time. 
And I was able to demonstrate it in real time. I mean, you just turn stuff up and down. I could put everything in one rig and I could create the old system. Put all the mix into left and right and then move the vocals to one rig. And, oh my gosh, it's like somebody takes a blanket of buzz, a blanket of fuzz off of everything. So I didn't do that with K1 because it was louder. It had more headroom. So I wasn't up near the limitations and it hung 24 boxes deep. So I was able to... The advantages of the double hung rig for the blur part of it are limited are, are enhanced by running a system near full volume. So since I wasn't running it near full volume, it reduced, I'd lost some of the openness of it. But we're seeing some advances in that with like Elisa system from L Acoustics and the, you know, Dolby Atmos and some other stuff out there to try and expand this. Okay, so you think we'll see more uh, multi-channel mixing, more multi-channel arrays? Yeah, we're definitely seeing more now. Oh, and as far as someone copying or copy repeating it, I wasn't the first person to do multi-channel. I think I was the first one to do it on a large arena scale. I know there's a version of that that they use for Broadway, where if you have two people with lav mics standing in close proximity, and if you take both those lav mics and you combine them together. Um, into and you run those into a single speaker, then as they move closer and farther away, my voice getting into your mic, your voice getting into my mic causes all these phase again, the same source going into multiple things or multiple reproductions of the same source. Yeah. So it would cause phase because of the electronic perfect summation of those mics then radiated by speakers. But by having, let's say, my mic went into one speaker and your mic went into another speaker. Well, now we've never electronically summed those two different inputs. We've only let them acoustically sum after they've come out the speakers. And the issues and ramifications are much reduced um, when they're acoustically summed versus electronically summed. Mm -hmm. um, and you could do that, too. You could take and pan one person with one mic to the right and one person, which is more like what I was doing with the kick drums which is what Broadway is doing. So the concept that I'm doing with the kicks and using one mic is taking that Broadway concept and uh, applying it. The double hung PA is actually, even though it seems more similar, is actually a different angle. Dave Bonetti says, does he need an assistant? I, I think what I want to talk about for a second is where to get training in this industry. Because when I hear that question, that's what I'm kind of hearing is like, I want to get more training or I want a mentorship. How do I do that? So I don't know if it's so much, how do I work with Dave Rett, but like, where do I look for mentors in this industry so I can, you know, get more experience? There seems to be two, cat, two types of, or two different angles to that question that I've seen over the years. One is, how do I become a sound engineer? They focus purely on, I want to be a sound engineer, how do I get there? And it's and also you know how do I want to work Coachella? How do I work Coachella? Uh, I want to be famous movie star. How do I get there? It's just, <laughs> I, I want to be a millionaire. How do I get there? It's the destination. Just, it's like, I want to go straight from where I am to the upper echelon of all the good stuff. And then the other is I want to work in the industry. I love to do. I want to do sound, but I'll do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's the one. That's the angle that actually is. Both of them are viable. It's just, I don't have as much help for someone who wants to go straight from where they are to be a sound engineer. Uh, find a band, lets you do sound and practice. And it's a, it's a, it's a long shot ish. 
if you desire to learn everything you can, and at least for me, that's what I did, is I've learned every, I've done everything. I, I want to learn everything. I want to know, I still want to know everything. I mean, if I, I need to draw stuff for sound tools, I learned to use SolidWorks. I'll draw the 3D drawing. Oh, well, I got a print. I'll learn to do a 3D printer. We're going to do that. I'll get a print. I'll learn whatever I can. And I think that that, knowing each step along the way, whether you perfect it or just get a good idea of it, it allows you to really understand what can be done. And I've seen people that have come in here as interns, you know, they start out as working in the shop or they start out as an A3, work their way up to A2, A1. They're out with a band. They do a good job. They know what they're doing. They care. They watch. They hang out with the monitor engineer. Monitor engineer jumps to another gig. Boom, they're monitor engineer. And all of a sudden, they're working for a world-class touring rock band. Nice. Um, we've had a couple people come out of um, Full Sail, you know, that for some people, they want more structured learning. And I'm not making recommendations of any schools because uh, they're Depends on the person. Sure. Uh, yeah, we have a world-class monitor engineer, a couple of those that have come out of full sail and, again, worked as crew people. We typically only see that side of it being a sound vendor. And then that, for me, that's what I did is I learned to do build the speakers, wire the speakers, test the speakers. Yeah. Plus, on top of that, if, if your goal <clears throat> is learning everything you can, then you're probably going to be happy every day. And if your goal is mixing a Coachella and you didn't do that today, then this, yeah. This, that, yeah, that going deeper into that. Yes, that's true. That, uh, Marty America asks, uh, how's your dog doing? We talked a little bit about this. I know Marty America. Hello, Marty. He's good. I think you're going to find out tomorrow. I'm going to find out they're doing x-rays tomorrow. He's still up at UC Davis. Uh, I have videos of him. I think I posted one. On, I posted one on Facebook that um, he's walking, putting weight on his leg. So if all goes well, I'm going to drive up to Sacramento Thursday and pick him up at UC Davis Friday, visit my daughter, Sammy, at Berkeley, Great. hang out with her, come back down. I'm excited. And little DB here who's sitting on your lap. <laughs> you made a friend. You've got a little um, who he now. is going to be super excited to see his buddy. Uh, I was really interested in your blog when you started writing about the Tesla. And I was reading all those posts because uh, I think they're pretty cool cars. So Micah just says, how's the Tesla? <laughs> if I am totally honest about it, it just sounds like, it's not even true and that I'm making things up. So it's like you can't even tell people how good it is without sounding like you're this fiction. Right. Okay. For me, when I stopped touring in 2017, January, I came home and was like, you know, if I'm going to drive myself around instead of someone else, I'm going to get something that I've got. 65,000 miles in that car in a little over two years. Mm -hmm. It's got the dog mode. You put dog mode on. The dog what? What's the dog mode? Oh, you the dog drives? Dog, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> you put dog mode on when you get out, and it keeps the air conditioning set for uh, the pups, okay. and it puts a thing on the screen that says, my owner will be back, and it tells the temperature inside the car so that people that freak out that they see a dog in their car, they go, uh, I did that, and I put solar on my roof at the same time. And so, my God, 
I drive, what, 60,000 miles in two years, 30,000 miles a year. So it's like 2,500 miles a month, 25, 12, 24, yeah, 2,500 a month. My electric bill sometimes gets up to $18. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm upset because it's usually down in the five to nine region. (laughs) Wow. And that's charging at home. I just, that's, I feel, it's good. I keep closing the trunk, the frunk. It's got a frunk right in the front. I've got running shoes. I've got swimsuit. I've got an extra set of clothes. I've got a toiletry bag. So if I'm anywhere and I don't, if I need to stay at a hotel, I've got everything I need in a separate compartment. Nice. Surfboard on the roof. Oh. Uh, Dave, what is one book that's been especially helpful to you? And it doesn't have to be audio. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Do you remember the author? Richard Feynman. Uh, my favorite book to recommend. Um, he was a nuclear physicist, worked at Alamos, Los Alamos. He was involved in um, finding out why the space shuttle crashed. And he is just awesome and smart. He, he like figures out that in Los in the nuclear facility, they're not changing the codes on the file cabinets from their factory set so he learns to pick them and puts notes in nuclear folders you know file folders and they're like they get mad at him for doing that you can't break into these and he says well i broke in because he didn't change the code who's going to get in trouble here me or you mm-hmm. um and they wouldn't believe him with the o-ring issue of why the shuttle went out mm. and they said that it the temperature was too cold, the coldest launch they did. And he said that uh, he came up with, he finally came down, he's like, he thinks that it's the O-rings were compressed and they weren't resilient enough. And he went into the meeting with everyone who's trying to pitch his thing. He's kind of like the guy like, oh, 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 me, me. And they're like uh, ignoring him. They sure. don't wanna. So he asked for a glass of water. They won't bring in the water. The ice water won't bring. Finally gets the ice water. He's got the pliers. He's got his whole thing set up. And he finally gets a chance. And he pinches the O-ring out of the ice water. And he shows that it doesn't bounce back. And he's, this is... So just international prankster of happiness, of curiosity. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And he's like super brilliant mathematician. Uh, Dave, where is the best place for people to keep up with what you're working on? Online. I post stuff on on Instagram. I post photos, not necessarily always audio, either surfing dogs or shows that I go to, which isn't that often. Facebook, I do interact with people. I think my next adventure is leaning towards, we've been setting up sound tools, dealer distributors all over the world. I think we have 22 now. A couple, we just set one up in Vietnam. We have one in Mexico and uh, a couple in Australia, and so I think what I want to do next is um, go visit my go visit the Sound Tools dealers. Sure, Dave, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Great, well, it's a pleasure and great hanging out, and um, yeah, thank you for coming by to the Rat World. Sound Design. If you use Smart but you've been struggling to read the phase graph, then I have good news for you. Phase Invaders is now open to the public. Version 1 has just been launched. You can see all of the information and sign up for a free 7-day trial over at phaseinvaders.com.
Com. So if you've never heard of this before, this is the app that I've been working on for the last year that allows you to not only practice looking at an audio analyzer and manipulating the data without a PA or any extra equipment, just with a computer and an internet connection, or upload your own traces from Smart, test your main sub-alignments there. You can get all the information at phaseinvaders.com. That's P-H-A-S-E invaders.com. You can even see a fun video of... Merlin and I playing together. I want to thank The Funk Lives for the music in today's episode. You can find more of their music over at thefunklives.bandcamp.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Learn Stage Lighting, Scott, Pedro, Ryan, Bob, Martin, Rody Free Radio, Joel, Ellis, Jim, Senqui, Terry, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Thank you.